Welcome to another thought-provoking episode of Power of Perspective with Stephen Ritchie podcast. I'm your host, Stephen, and today we delve into a captivating exploration of capitalism and consumerism. Joining us is Verhagen, the amazing host of the Authentic Chaos podcast. He has shown a strong interest in these topics, and I look forward to an awesome discussion and hearing his always unique perspective. Today, we will uncover the multifaceted aspects of capitalism, consumerism, and examine their positive and negative implications. Yeah, as this topic is capitalism, I thought I'd start with a fun sort of facts and story on a game that is maybe the embodiment of capitalism or a massive critique of it, which I'm sure we'll do some of that today. And so yeah, Monopoly as a game has, uh, you may know it's from childhood. <laughs> I think that's when most people play it. Has, you know, it's a game that's been very popular, sold a lot of copies. In World War II, it was actually used by the British Secret service to help prisoners escape war. It was a special version that they sort of had that had secret tools that they used to help them escape. So that was kind of interesting. And then if you go into like the background, it's a very beloved game. It actually started as this game Landlords by, you know, the school Elizabeth Margie back in the 1900s and it was a protest against monopolistic practices. There was actually two rule sets of the game design one anti-monopolistic and one monopolistic. The one was playing together you know seeing how great the world was when there wasn't monopolies and the other was a theory craft of like hey if there is monopolies and we're all in poverty and struggling how does that look and people rather enjoyed that post-apocalyptic version unfortunately so that became popular the game was kind of there to sort of pose monopolies and challenge themes like wealth accumulation there was this philosophy where you know landowners should be taxed more which he believed in you know their thinking was that is that in those days if you owned the land you had all the power because the people are making money on the land Regardless of what happens there, you're always getting money. And so the landowners have power, at least back in those days. And so they should have more influence on things like general votes, but also pay more tax. And yeah, so that's a sort of bit of a fun backstory on where it came from. Verhagen, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you on. Thank you, Stephen. It's great to be back on the Power Perspective again. Um, I was thrilled to be called again to a chat. Had a lot of fun last time and excited for another fun chat. I hope you like my little uh, fun story on the background of a nice little game. You know what? Game. I did. I didn't know that about Monopoly. And it's funny that you bring up Monopoly because I remember playing it a lot as a kid with my siblings. And one thing I remember very distinctly about Monopoly is that it was a very fun game when you were winning and it sucked when you were dead last. And I think that's a very apt analogy for how capitalism functions in our modern society. It's great when you have the capital. It's great when you have the private property. It's great when you're the capitalist. Sucks when you're the laborer. Sucks when you're being stepped on by the capitalist. <laughs> exactly. It's funny how like a stronger parallel you can sort of draw in that game. Some people are thriving and enjoying the game and, you know, celebrating every time you land on their little hotel strip or, you know, little house sort of village. And others are like, how do I pay off my debts? You know, now I have to mortgage my properties and basically bankrupt everyone until that's just, I guess, one monopoly is kind of the idea the rich get richer the poor get poorer 
Although in a game, <laughs> that's a lot of fun, I guess, because we're quite competitive creatures and there's sort of outwitting people and, you know, outthriving. It's like we're actually competitive by design, right? It's interesting that you bring that up because I hear a lot of arguments about capitalism saying that it's kind of in our nature, that we're naturally competitive. And while that is true to an extent, like humans are also very social creatures and we wouldn't have gotten where we are today without the immense amount of cooperation that we had to have in our early days. We couldn't get to the point where we can even have capitalism without first forming like little tribes and families and communities and like helping each other even our pre like homo sapien era of just collecting resources gathering and like trying to protect ourselves from predators and keep our families and tribes safe yeah first we for the better or for the worse i mean that's the episode uh digressed from that somewhat right i mean there's definitely still collaborative aspect of society but there's also this more <laughs> almost who gets on top and capitalism encourages that like capitalism in my view needs to have you need to have winners and losers and you need to build this idea that for someone to win someone else has to lose capitalism revolves around the concept private property who says who should have any claim to a land like who many cultures like lived on this same planet, in these same places that we live in today, without needing a concept of private property. They just lived off of the land. It was seen as you had this communal relationship with the land. You took care of the land, the land took care of you. You didn't own the land, no one owned the land, but you still like benefited from the land. But you can't extract value from land that everybody owns. So, yes, private property. That comes to the problem of, cool, well, I own the source of the, you know, gathering this value and I use that value by, you know, more property and perpetually just that's where it kind of explodes where, cool, the people who use my sort of land are generating me resources and are reliant mm -hmm. on me and they're paying, you know, their what they have to pay, the rent or such. And so I use that by more property and get someone else sort of locked into the system. And that sort of just endlessly happens because there's nothing that would stop that momentum. And I think this is maybe in the game where they were coming from. Of, well, you know, if this process just gets out of control, you know, eventually some people are stuck in situations they can't get out of. And some people just, you know, almost perpetuate these maybe problems or situations to a point that inherently it has no sort of end, I suppose, until in our case, I guess, there's either something big that happens or we run out of resources or, you know, I don't know, political turmoil the breaking point. Right. In modern days, that can be seen through like landlords buying up properties to like then rent them out, which then reduces the amount of affordable housing available to people because it's now being exploited and turned into profit centers for fewer and fewer people. But even in pre-capitalism eras, this existed. Like think about if you look back to like medieval Europe, for instance, in pre-capitalism, you would have lords that would own chunks of land and the serfs would farm that land, but would then get taxed heavily for it. Uh, history did not end too well for many of the lords in the end. There were many revolutions. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe those are the breaking points. <laughs> in the past, yeah, the, the breaking point was bloodshed, unfortunately. The revolution in Russia, France, there are in many cases of despotic rulers being overthrown uh, when the wealth gap became too much. You know, that's actually a sort of an interesting 
angle is sort of looking through at capitalism and, you know, opposing systems through history, right? I mean, it's shape history, you know. If you had to choose a factor of, of society that's really directed to where things have gone and are going, it's kind of this, this economic system which sort of becomes a societal driver or even system? For sure. Yeah, of course, capitalism has a huge impact on society and like how our history currently is being written. Like everything is defined in the concept of consumerism. Everything is defined in the context of resources to be used, labor value to be extracted, profits to be gained. So yeah, I mean, it has a huge influence on how our lives are going. But one thing I like to push people to think about is, is it necessary at this point? Because capitalism is concerned with the idea of constant growth, infinite growth. But we're running into problems today that are directly caused from capitalism. Food insecurity, homelessness, environmental disasters, climate change. All of these have been exacerbated, if not caused directly by capitalism. And we're trying to and But because we live in this frame of seeing the world through through a capitalist narrative and because we see capitalism as an inevitability as in there is no other system that will take it that will overcome capitalism because capitalism is in our nature of course we humans are naturally competitive that's in our dna so of course we're going to be capitalism so there's no point in even considering other alternatives so when you can look at that frame you say oh food insecurity homelessness climate change these problems are inevitable so the only way we can solve them is through capitalism itself, which is like putting out a fire with more fire, maybe hotter fire, maybe <laughs> colder fire. Maybe it'll work. Future shall be interesting, almost cycle that fuels itself, a self-fulfilling prophecy that just goes mm -hmm. on. Do you think capitalism had value? And I mean, I'm not saying it didn't I even in current days, but looking at the past, because it emerged, you know, out of some sort of necessity or need or driver, right? So do you think there's yeah. points where yeah. it was very valuable and maybe points in history where it was a disaster that got hung on to? I mean, by definition, capitalism provides value. It's the value of more resources and it does enable more people to have access to more resources, which on surface sounds great, right? Like, like more people having more resources sounds like a very good thing. And there have been times where it has been a good thing when you've got uh, periods of sustained like middle class growth where as many people as possible are gaining value and gaining resources and don't have to deal with food insecurity, water insecurity, housing insecurity and can like thrive. Then that's fantastic. Like capitalism does has ex like excelled in the past from that. And when it was like really getting pushed, it was helping a lot of people. But it was also there have been many times where it's been hurting the people that we were told it's supposed to help and really helping the people that have been pushing for capitalism. So if you think about who really benefits from capitalism, who would you think really benefits from it? I think to the largest extent, you know, inherently the people at top, but, you know, even mm -hmm. the people in the middle are you know benefiting. It's the problem is at the bottom is the people who are feeling the negative impacts. As a middle class person, you know, there's definitely struggles and things, but there's a lot of value kind of it adds to my life. And at the top, you know, obviously there's lots of value. What yeah. value do you think it provides to your life that wouldn't have been there otherwise? Ooh, this is debatable because the one aspect is quality of life. But you have these ideas of whether a simple life, you know, on a farm with a f strong family community, 
all this life of <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if I'm a person of excess but like in theme sense sort of excess and you can have yeah. what you want there's a lot of problems it solves in terms of development you know medical systems are very developed people you know maybe live longer maybe that's a symptom or benefit from capitalism so that kind of development has created things of value there's convenience with technology and if once you've got uh, education and stuff you're very sustainable <laughs> unless the the country and the politics doesn't go downhill there's sort of a security of if i'm in life's in a good space it shall continue to be in a good space so as long as i play the game bring up, you bring up some good points but I think you bring them up in the context of the inevitability of capitalism. And let me explain why. So you mentioned that healthcare, like we wouldn't have as good of medicine as we do today if we didn't have capitalism. Well, did you know that Cuba actually has very good healthcare and more expansive healthcare than the U.S.? The U.S. is the king of like we have the most high tech healthcare for sure and we develop the most like high tech drugs and things like that but for most of us here who need routine things or if we want to solve like very curable things there are some eye conditions right like cataracts and things like that where a very simple surgery can basically prevent blindness but it is very expensive in the US and in some places they can make that free or very cheap very affordable to people so it, then in that case, well, what is the better healthcare system? Is it having the most high-tech advanced system or the system that is most available to the most people? And that's debatable, right? But like just putting it out there that there are other alternatives. In education, would you agree that the U.S. is a very capitalist country? Uh, yes. We're probably maybe even the most capitalist country, right? We fought the Cold War against the USSR to push capitalism as much as possible. So I don't think it's unreasonable to say we are the most capitalist country. So wouldn't yeah. you expect us to have the best education? If we have all this money, we should have yes. the best education in the world. But we have like consistently like some of the worst education in some of our most like capitalist states, like the most like conservative pro corporation, pro capitalist states in the country here have some of the worst education rankings. You know, learning institutions are government funded. Is it an issue of the amount of resources that are allocated to education that's the issue? That's usually the problem. Yeah. yeah. Like in the US, teachers are criminally underpaid. Many teachers have to get multiple jobs, like jobs outside of teaching, like Uber driving, DoorDash, in order to live in the town that they like teach in. And like teaching is a full time job. And like if we really like cared about the education of our children, we would invest way more money into that. But here's the thing. This is not by accident. Yeah. In the U.S., especially in the more capitalist, like pro corporation leaning areas, there's a big push to reduce um, public education as much as possible in favor of private education, like private schools, because someone is making money off of that. No one is making money off of public schools. Someone is making money off of private schools. Yeah. And if the quality of education, the public schools gets weaker and the power of the education at the private schools gets stronger. And, you know, that's giving money into the pockets of, you know, the people who can afford the private school. Is that yeah. like a strategy of its own? <laughs> it's like just shifting demand. Yeah. So I want to go back to your to the first point of like yes. asking about well, like what is the value that you are getting from capitalism? And I think behind that is another is like an even deeper question of like what is 
what is value? What is a good life for you? And you'd mentioned like, oh, maybe a simple life would be fine too. Maybe in the contrast of like a simple life versus the life you have now, maybe somewhere in that like intersection is what you find valuable in your life. And one of my big pushes behind my podcast and my new mission in life is I want to people to try to think about what actually provides you happiness. What makes it easier to choose happiness every day? Is it the stuff that provides you happiness? And like, be honest with yourself. Like, yeah, if your fancy car and TV do provide you happiness, then great. Capitalism is probably, consumerism and capitalism are probably helping you out a lot. If they're not providing you as much happiness as say, like the relationships in your life, friendships, family, uh, maybe experiences, then maybe this is an opportunity to reconsider and maybe even imagine what another option would be for you personally. Interesting thing, I suppose, is that when you look at the values that we sort of growing up are placed is things like, you know, get the house, get the car, you know, get the girl and all that. And have children so that yes. they can go to college. Um, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Instead of continuation of the species, it's continuation of the, I suppose, the income and the family security. So, well, it, it's also a continuation of the species because you need more people to, like, keep the system going. Like, if you want to have kids, have kids. But even that whole dream, right? Like, everyone has that dream. You get a house. You get a job. You get the girl. You get married. Or you get the guy. You get married. You have kids. And, like, everyone across multiple different cultures have this vision, right? Like, how is it that everyone has this dream? Like, where does it come from? Is it innate within us? Our ancestors have this vision when we didn't really have like when we lived in family homes and like stayed within like small towns or villages. Or is this a byproduct of the system that we currently live in telling us this is the life that we should want? When I watch things, you know, TED Talks on happiness and things, what you sort of realize is that the key things that people seem to find that makes them happy is things like quality of relationships they have, which maybe goes back to communities, the experiences they have, the effect things have, you know, whether you do fancy holidays or, you know, you have struggle and then good and bad, but just experiences people find more valuable than things when it comes to happiness and fulfillment and purpose and, you know, even just health. So when you look at sort of the both stats and kind of studies and expert talks, those are sort of the common themes. You don't even have to look to TikTok. Like the people, people in the West are now realizing what like Buddhists and Hindus kind of figured out hundreds of years ago, right? Like that happiness doesn't come from having the nicest things, having the most resources. Happiness is an internal journey. It doesn't come from anything external. It's a state of mind you have to choose. In my view, that is antithetical to capitalism because if your source of value in life is purely internal and doesn't come from anything external, then you have a lot less reason to consume. Yes. And if you're not consuming, then someone isn't making profit off of you. It is interesting. We've got the system where, you know, we need, we create reasons to have more and more resources required. And so we generate more and more resources. And then, you know, now we eventually the resources start running out. So the resources become more valuable. And then, you know, people have to fight even harder over kind of the less resources. And some of the resource scarcity is artificial. For instance, fresh water. 
right? I've read many articles about how fresh water is starting to run out. And it's true. A lot of fresh water sources, natural fresh water sources are drying up because of climate change, because of the oil companies and capitalism. And thank you, oil companies. By the way, the big oil companies in the US knew about climate change in the 60s. Their scientists knew that the climate was changing because of fossil fuel usage. They buried that and spent a lot of money to convince everyone that was not happening, which put us into the position we are today. So excellent, excellent work, capitalism. Even if we look at freshwater scarcity, well, we have a huge amount of salt water. The planet is mostly salt water. And we know we have desalination technology. Why can't we desalinate? Well, it's expensive, right? <laughs> it's expensive. Exactly. No one can make a profit off of it, so they're not considering. Instead, Nestle, Coca-Cola, all these bottled water companies, uh, <laughs> they're going to natural sources of fresh water and bottling it up and selling it back to us. So that way, even though our fresh water sources are drying up, they are legally allowed and legally protected in bottling it and selling it back to us. There's sort of this disconnect between societal value and power. This is a good example, right? And maybe this is where we have to consider where we're leading society. What do you mean by societal value? So, you know, at various points in history, maybe we develop systems to solve problems. You know, how do we solve it? We have to change our systems. And there's, you know, so building economies and stuff was quite valuable. For instance, I suppose maybe it goes to values is that societal value may be a doctor, you know, keeps people alive, you know, improves mm -hmm. quality of life. And, you know, so I suppose any role that improves quality of life for others could be considered a quite a valuable thing in society. You know, education, for instance, it enables people to, you know, thrive in the capitalist sort of society and, you know, provide. But as you said, they're not getting paid, you know, according to their value, but the people deciding what should be paid, which sort of indicates what is of value is the people trying to make the money because they've made money before. And so it feels like the people deciding what should be valuable, where we should put the money and, you know, who should be compensated and who should be incentivized aren't the people who have the kind of broader value, you know, in their sites. They're looking at what's valuable to them in their specific situation as opposed to the overall situation, which in a sort of naturally developing, you know, maybe society, you would think that a okay, society develops to solve a problem, to develop into a, a way that, you know, adds value, achieves an objective. You know, that's sort of the natural flow of where we collaborate together. We can kind of take what we find valuable and reach it faster. Uh, but now you've got this situation where, you know, people individually know of what is valuable, right? If you have to ask people what is valuable. It does differ, but there's some key things where well, a lot of people would agree that those are valuable, that that improves the lives of a lot of people is always kind of an easy one if you're trying to improve your own life. But the yeah. issue is that now, you know, we all have the sense of it, but in isolation, you know, Nestle is like, well, you know, they need more money or they've decided that, you know, coca production security is very important. So they're allocating all this money to build farms, to build coca, right? But to the general mm -hmm. sense, you know, <laughs> most people aren't so interested in, you know, coca. Surely we want the chocolate or Whatever, but it's not a top priority for us and it's not something we were put in a position to design you know how to allocate resources that we would choose you know no government would or you know controlling entity let's put all that money into to chocolate because the chocolate people want money into chocolate of course so this feels like this is power dynamic that's kind of misaligned where people pursuing personal in quotes or you know corporate objectives are able to allocate all the resources towards that 
even though you know no, they know that for themselves that's not even solving their problems besides the getting more money and so on so i don't know there's this weird sort of power dynamic versus resource or value allocation i guess and it's like how do you kind of solve that where someone education system everyone sees well if you put money into the education system that should be capitalist right because <laughs> education leads to more jobs leads to more people who can produce things and a more stronger economies are inherently capitalist incentivized right and sort of the embodiment of capitalism so you would think that capitalism would derive the ability for people to fulfill capitalism further and on the value side it is you know it's shifted people's values in a direction where as you said people will value sort of these ideas that we're not even sure why we have them since we're starting to realize that they're not even the ideas that make sense to us just having more owning things our values have shifted to pursue like what thriving means to capitalism but capitalism sort of deciding where to allocate resources is totally disjunct to that so isn't that a strange dynamic careful there it sounds like you're advocating for something more socialist and you're uh, <laughs> well, proposing a societal value <laughs> <laughs> pros and cons everywhere i think maybe we can break it down maybe even one system at a time so i would challenge your argument that education is in the best interest of capitalism because i started to believe for a while now that it's not actually in the best interest to have like a very well educated peoples like you need a couple well-educated people but let's look at like the history of capitalism at least in the u.s right like u.s has a pretty long history of it in like the early 20th century when we had all of these big uh, companies starting to form like standard oil like Ford was starting to get started workers were revolting because corporations would house workers in company towns like literally would buy land house workers in their towns charge them rent have stores that the workers would go to like workers would buy things at the company store. They would live in the company town. They were basically always on site and constantly exploited. And you know what happens when the owner wanted to make more money? They cut expenses by cutting salaries. Oh, but they didn't cut rents or food costs. So workers were getting squeezed. And so they pushed back, they striked, they unionized, and they were able to get more protections legally. That's not a capitalist thing. Capitalism doesn't actually want that. If you look at how things moved and changed with the assembly line, more automation, what is that doing? But taking these like really highly skilled jobs, like building a car, for instance, right? pretty highly skilled at the time. Like there's a lot of mechanics that goes into it. But if you have a robot doing it now, you don't need any. You don't need those people. They don't need to be educated to do that. The robots already know how to do it. Maybe you need a couple mechanics for the robots. But as we're going on, we're seeing more and more automation. Now, a lot of warehouse jobs are being automated. Now we have talk of AI and all of the wonderful things that it'll do. But newsflash, most of these companies are going to use it to automate away sales jobs, automate away uh, customer service jobs. And what are the people that used to do that going to do? It's not like there's any safety net for it. Capitalism says, well, I don't know, sucks. Suck. Go find another job or do something useful, you bum. Like the government's <laughs> not going to come in and like give you money for having lost your job to automation. And I think the ultimate goal of capitalism is the, the most efficient thing is you have one person who presses a button and it produces all of the wealth. All of the wealth just generates right to them. Like have everything as automated as possible, maybe even automate all of the middleman and have the one capitalist sitting on the pile of profits, the king on the throne. 
Yeah, that's kind of interesting. Community sort of started through the these sort of as we you know we gathered and grouped together. There was value in you know working together and you know having leadership because of that mass coordination and so on. And oh, so yeah. slowly but surely we kind of centralized this power, um, and to the point where it went from maybe a need we kind of needed to centralize a bit of power, which for society to function as we grouped together because there was a lot mm-hmm. of value in grouping together. At a point, you know, when you're centralizing power and there's no longer those breaking needs that you know where if we don't solve these things we're in trouble now people are like well you know now i can just take all this power and just fulfill my needs to the extreme and not worry about the collective i think though if it's good side is i think capitalism maybe is like a nice ideology of potential how well implemented is maybe another aspect to it so you know capitalism sort of leads to development and acquiring resources so with more resources you can do more in theory And, you know, if we have big problems and we've developed technologies and essentially we've developed the means to effectively utilize the resources, that's kind of what tech Mm -hmm. and so on is, right? It's the efficiency and effectiveness of taking resources and doing something with them. So if we need to do something, we've got a lot of power to do it, right? You know, if you know society or a particular person who's wealthy needs something done, you know, more than ever, they can get it done. And we live much more technologically advanced lives. That's for sure. Then a question is, do we like... How much technological advancement do we really need? People found ways to be happy without electricity, even. People found ways to be happy without internet. People found ways to be happy before a lot of these things. Was it really necessary? Is it necessary to just keep consuming? And like I said earlier, I want to frame that more as maybe a personal question. Maybe you, dear listener, I would like you to just consider what does provide you happiness? Does consuming, is consumerism part of your like key to happiness or part of what makes it easier for you to choose happiness? And that's sort of the thoughts you've sort of given me is, it makes me think of the idea of sci-fi where there's this kind of future utopia with space traveling, you know, we're developing teleportation, all these fun ideas. And honestly, some of them are, are slowly but surely becoming a bit more worth looking at. The potential of what we could become, do we chase that? Because, you know, it's sort of ever growing versus is now good enough, is now as good as it gets? Because there's, you know, should we pursue the, you know, in quotes, more, like, is there more out there? Is there better out there? Or should we just at a point just stagnate and be like, no, this, this is it. We're good. <laughs> or even more radically, have we passed when it's good? Do we digress? It's, but <laughs> at some level, I'm just like with sci-fi, I want to see that, right? I want to see the potential actually being reached. Just if anything, our curiosity, but also the excitement of what could happen what will happen is it's so what, what is exciting about that potential maybe part of it is just the mystery of how good things get i think exciting to part of it is like say we alleviate all our problems and we think we know what is of the most valuable things now but maybe we find things of greater value in a way and maybe we as we get, find things of greater value, we also lose things of, of negative value, you know, uh, sickness, illness, you know, all those sort of things kind of that are quite you know, horrible things going around. And we almost raise the baseline of what human happiness and existence is. And raising the baseline is its own question because that's its own sort of scientific and even philosophical debate. But if we could raise the baseline happiness, that's very exciting. Although with happiness, it's interesting that people sort of naturally gravitate towards a baseline. You know, like in life, you've got these ups and downs, but generally we reach a baseline. You know, people who try to be 
more happy sort of kind of sort of level off at a point and people who are struggling can push themselves off to level off but yeah i don't know maybe it's that potential i guess capitalism at some level and innovation is just a representative of potential but maybe that comes at a cost of lack of self-acceptance or even societal acceptance but I think that's what excites me, me about it. Where do you think the happiness baseline is now compared to, say, 100 years ago, arbitrarily? Yes. So I think I first put out that part of it is just things are shifting around. Some things get better, but at the same time, some things get worse. The question is, at what point do we ever get to the point where things just get better? So back in the day, the, you know, the easy sort of uh, wins in the argument would be if you want to say, you know, well, if people are not living as long and they're suffering more through you know, pain and, you know, disease and struggle and loss. So a lot of people die very young. Well, longer lives is inherently you can enjoy the value around you for longer. So that'd be part of it. And then also so, dealing yeah. with problems, uh, certain problems. Maybe it's the quality of what you do. Although, <laughs> again, that's this is more maybe not where it's gone. But, you know, back in the day, maybe you do a very tedious job. I don't know, you you sand, you know, wood or something. And that's all you do. You're a tanner, which is basically the embodiment of meme of like, what is the worst almost existence? There's a lot of games use the tanner as the embodiment of what life should never be. That's like the worst. That's like you're just meaninglessly going through a job and, you know, achieving nothing. Maybe we've started to lose sort of the value of families and communities in some of the Western world and the values of experiences over, you know, owning things. I suppose that's what it looked like in the past for me. So do you think that you are happier now than you would have been if you were like a tanner? Adversity and almost can be a key thing in a happiness journey. You know, if you only have the good, well, you don't appreciate and you don't develop yourself to be capable of, you know, enjoying more in a way. I think on the, the connecting with people side, experiential side, maybe not. Like things like travel have opened up. So that's quite a valuable thing and experiences and just adrenaline and stuff you know fulfilling those yeah. kind of desires has changed things that are i'm striving towards in a capitalist society that i can strive towards but they come with struggles then you can kind of have it all that's kind of the goal i guess is those things we had of value in the past like connection and experiential focus and finding sort of more purpose and you know even just giving back to communities and you know that shared back and forth as opposed to you know what can i get out of things and just values right because you know modern times i often see the youngsters and some of the values they hold is so important or even my peers and i'm like you know wow that's things uh that's maybe a little worrying you know what's happening on the latest you know tv show which celebrities right. doing well and in relationships you know things like status and maybe even monetary related things although that's mm -hmm. quite a complex topic and you know what can i get from them yeah it's that kind of takey things i guess are overly emphasized and you know even things like you know hard work and having to work through things and develop yourself sometimes get neglected you can almost refine yourself to be better at, at achieving the things you want and better at the impact you want on those around them and the world around you. And so we have this, but something sort of will say, don't go for those things. And, you know, focus on all these little things in front of you that, you know, in the long run, maybe aren't that important, but it's very easy to get fixated, especially when everything around you, media and marketing and, you know, modern ideals kind of get very highlighted and overwhelming. Yeah, I think that when going back to this idea of a happiness baseline, 
I, I think it's one of those things that is probably never going to be like we can never define a happiness baseline. Even things like using life expectancy as like a corollary is like probably not that helpful because because then you'd be implying that like there are no miserable old people. And this is actually a conversation I had with a buddy of mine on my podcast. We talked about the idea of buying time as in like extending your lifespan as much as possible to enjoy as much of your time as possible versus enjoying the time you're living in right now. The thought I have behind this is that if you aren't used to enjoying your time now, you should not assume you're going to magically learn how to enjoy your time when you're old. No matter how many years you've bought, if you're like 80, 90, 100 years old, you could be just as miserable as you are today. Don't assume that things are going to magically change. I noticed this when I travel too. You'll notice people like to think that they'll like switch off, that like going to a different place, experiencing different things will somehow change them. But it never actually changes them. It may shake them up a little bit and give them the possibility to explore different aspects of themselves but that change is always internal like so even experiences that we have like traveling to new places or like getting news about different people or different events that those are all things that are external that we consume but aren't actually in my opinion sources of happiness i think that the happiness ultimately comes from within you Yes, you are the, the vessel. So I think Stephen Ritchie, the tanner, would be just as happy as Stephen Ritchie, the software engineer. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> if you had to I'd say, hey, do you want to be a tanner? I don't know. Potentially. But yeah, I think you can find a lot of happiness in yourself. I guess your internal determines how well you receive these sources of happiness outside uh, in terms of, you know, the value of just an interaction or a relationship or an experience will vary based on... On your internal but mm. if you don't have those things happening though your internal doesn't necessarily survive on its own <laughs> you know what i mean it's not a close system and there are people that like literally forsake their lives to go like like meditate like monks do this stuff like they forsake material possessions and then just focus on their meditations or like people do this in many different religions like would you say that they're not happy no, they could definitely be happy. I suppose from my perspective, it's a bit trickier to, as something maybe I don't experience that much. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think I, I do place a good value on the internal, but I, I find it as like maybe part of the process of enjoying the external. Living I in a world it, entirely of your yeah. own? It's an interesting one. I mean, what do we live in now, but worlds kind of entirely of our own? Even the world that we experience, even the things we see aren't objective reality. A lot of it goes through just looking at like a scene in front of you. The like the photons go through your eyes, gets interpreted by your like ocular neurons, gets sent to your prefrontal cortex. And before it even gets to a, the point in your mind where you can interpret the scene, it's gone through many different layers of like filters and biases and things that like are from evolution, like noticing certain shapes and from your how you were raised and from from like your own past experiences and your own expectations. So before you even see the world and can make a judgment on the world, your scene has gone through many different personalized adjustments. So I would argue you don't see, you don't experience the objective world. You are experiencing your world. Yes. 
And so that empowers me at least. And I think it can also empower you to consider that if you are experiencing the world from a very personalized lens, you have the power to see the world how you want to see it. Yeah. Maybe this is a part of the power of perspective, right? Like yeah. maybe it's that we've been living in these capitalist societies for so long that we haven't even considered alternate perspectives on how we could define our own happiness. Capitalism is antithetical to this point of view of happiness being internal, as I've mentioned. Like we have to consume in order for the system to keep growing. That even includes like going to traveling to different places, buying new things, just anything you can to like spend your resources so that you need more resources so that you keep working and keep providing value to like your employers. For me, it's like kind of go together, the external and the internal. When you're in a sort of a low and you sort of dig out of a low, you inherently at every stage of getting out of a really bad situation, as you move out of it, realize the value of improving the external around you improving, but also the value of improving the internal. So, you know, you, you become stronger and maybe you appreciate things around you more and you're more able to influence the world around you. And when you influence the world around you more, more capably, then you're, you're in a better situation to grow yourself. And then you sort of form better relationships and you realize, wow, you know, the types of conversations and value out of these kind of better relationships from a better internal and even better external as you move up in that process of coming from a low to a high when you do it in a way that you the internal improves and you know maybe the baseline happiness goes up and the external when you do those hand in hand i've seen such sort of value in that that to detach those and just say well i definitely don't know the external on its own <laughs> for a while can sustain you and make you think of it as a happy life it can be short-lived and also unfulfilling and shallow but then also if you're not taking care of the internal then you know you've got all these great things around you but there's no you can't enjoy them because mental health and just unfulfilling relationships so for me it's hand in hand uh, i could see you just getting one of those aspects to the epitome of it and being happy but i think maybe my experience and maybe in a more general sort of outcome i would i think hand in hand is sort of the way maybe valuing the old ways and the value of the internal and then the value of the external and the value of the new ways and taking the best of all the worlds i think that's my would be my perspective is how can we take every avenue of tools around us and happiness and create a conducive product. So I suppose these Creating are two products. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Once again, the language of capital. Yeah. <laughs> oh yes. I've deepened the, uh, the capital mm. zoom. So, well, one question I'd have for you on that is when you say that you influence the external, is it that you're actually like objectively external influencing the external world or are you influencing your perception of the external world? I think both, you know, the perception of the external world is maybe being able to value things better you know more to your personal sort of self better values um you know better objectives and so actually the things that you think are make you more happy versus the things that actually make you more happy becoming better at going towards those i guess finding better and better sources of happiness and realizing which ones aren't as great sources, even though they seem sort of great. So even though maybe the how impressive they sound or how hard they are to achieve hasn't changed, it's more the ship is sailing in a better direction, in a more refined course and gathering just as available resources maybe, but gathering the right resources. Mm -hmm. And so 
maybe that's the the value is so maybe it's not always up and up and away but it's definitely finding better participating in the easter egg hunt of of life i suppose <laughs> it's interesting that you call it an easter egg hunt and even the ways you describe it like we definitely have different views on like what happiness is or like how to where it comes from personally i subscribe to the buddhist and mindfulness philosophies here where in that philosophy you accept that you don't control the world around you we can't control the things that happen to us we can't control the people around us we can't control we can only control ourselves and we can only control how we're going to perceive it the buddhists believe that the only choice we have in life is whether we will choose to be happy. It's not like a happiness as in like nothing will ever go wrong and I will never be sad again. Like it's happiness in terms of like a state of mind, a state of being, of contentedness or fulfillment. I call it vibing unconditionally. That no matter what the situation is, no matter what, how great things are externally or how poor things are externally, we still have to vibe. We still have to be ourselves. We still have to show up. We have to be present because if we're not, we are intentionally choosing unhappiness. As my sort of, I suppose, interest to some degree in that kind of thinking and a bit more of the, you know, the mindfulness and community driven lifestyles and maybe Buddhist philosophies, it is growing. I haven't sort of reached the, the the other side, but I think I am seeing the value. So maybe I'm moving more towards, but I'm not quite there. I'm definitely, as you said, at a different spot maybe, but I am seeing that maybe, you know, not just shoot ahead in the direction I'm going, you know, at full speed, but maybe sort of veer off a bit, you know, try that little bit of path, yeah. you know, kind of see the, the value there and, you know, test my perception and perspective sort of testing it but it is interesting it kind of like pulling this back to capitalism the other yes. day or a couple of weeks ago i was watching a video uh from like a psychologist talking about the concept of unwanting and it's this idea so capitalism preys on some of the insecurities we have in our mind insecurities around survival and scarcity like capitalism requires a scarcity mindset to really thrive because you want more because you don't want to have less and because of that we end up wanting things that we don't actually want and that don't actually provide us value or happiness and in the process of trying to achieve that we are hurting ourselves we're hurting our mental health we're hurting our relationships so the idea here is like maybe taking a step back maybe taking a breather don't always go full steam ahead or full speed ahead maybe it's an opportunity to ask yourself like what do i actually want will this thing actually help me is this actually uh helping me choose happiness or am i just being caught up in the rush so there's definitely there are the societal issues around it, but then there's also, you know, various benefits that have come through it. Mm -hmm. Let's look at maybe the alternates, you know, if not living in a, a capitalist sort of society, what should we live in? That's a great question. I don't think we can ever like fully root out full capitalism, but maybe we could. Maybe we could. Um, I think that with the technological advances that have been made, and the automation that's been made. There's some simple like steps that can, or not simple steps. None of this is simple, but like I think a gradual process to a 
system that would help provide more societal value would be like, we'll compensate the workers you've displaced through automation. Things like tax companies to undo the environmental damages that they've caused, um, use the resources that have been extracted by the capitalists to help support the world that they are exploiting. Like, call it reparations, call it whatever you want. Like even reparations in the US, it's an argument that like we should repay like descendants of former slaves. We repaid the slave owners for uh, when we emancipated the slaves in the 1800s, but we didn't pay back the slaves themselves. So if we want to start like correcting some of these wrongs using the system and like using the power of these like governments that are supposed to overlook these systems to like take that value back and put it back into the community would be very helpful. Some people propose things like effective capitalism or effective altruism or like basically using the tools of capitalism and keeping it in the hands of the capitalists, but using it for good, like capitalism for good. Things like, oh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with if you've heard of effective altruism, but it's this idea that if you have a lot of money and you use that money for charities and like solving a lot of problems, that's good. So in that case, having the most money to do the most charity is the most good. Yes. That's obviously problematic because then you, you basically have one person deciding what is good versus like at least with a government, you vote for your, you can vote for people. And so you could have a lot of people deciding what is good. It's shifting the value to not just what is valuable to me, but what is valuable to the rest and making what is valuable to the rest valuable to me again. Yeah, it'd be like saying like Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos uh, probably know what's best for me. So I'll let them decide what I what should be <laughs> best for me. Kind of is interesting though, like they're at that point, they're essentially able to take care of their needs to the fullest and... They, they you, had, you don't need that much money. To, yes, to no, exactly. They're a long way off. But, you know, at that point, the, the mask, for instance, has taken advantage of his kind of that position and been like, well, you know, now that I'm good, <laughs> in quotes, you know, capitalism has served me to the point that I've derived the value I needed out of it. Well, now I can actually take this position and all the extra value I get out of it, you know, help the world help others so that, you know, this world I'm living in, this capitalist society is a better place right that's why he started the nonprofit tesla and the nonprofit spacex and the nonprofit uh twitter he's not doing any of this out of the goodness of his heart first of all he didn't like start any of those companies none of this is being like out of the goodness of his heart he's making money off of all of this if he wanted to do like th services for the public good why not spend some of his vast fortune and solve homelessness in the u.s house everybody <laughs> it would cost a mere fraction of his wealth like probably less than two to three percent of his wealth to house all of the homeless people in the US. And there are a lot of them. Maybe blurring the lines can be useful of saying, well, they're not diverting, you know, everything, but maybe achieving their capitalist goals while achieving, you know, some of the other more societal goals at the same time, you know, like some overlap as opposed to a full redirect. They are SpaceX and those make money, but they also help society out in some areas. They're not necessarily handling some of the key areas, but if we move a little bit, you know, 
more blurring the lines where cool it's like the green initiative right green energy you know it's there's money to be made it's not all good right people out there to make money in new avenues but it's it's blurring the lines a bit of saying well how can i thrive in a capitalist way and make as much money out of this new venture as possible but at the same time realizing and making sure that the venture is something that adds some level of value to society it's like you know working together it's like i can get value out of society in a way that at least I give some value back so it's kind of like aligning the goals a bit more but not doing a full revamp of like (laughs) my goal is to help society but more my goal is to help myself but at the same time I can help society while pursuing that and making that more enticing yeah and there are plenty of people who are proposing doing that I don't think it is ultimately effective, just like I don't think electric cars are nearly the benefit, the environmental boon that people think they are, because there's a lot of like rare earth mining that goes into it, which ends up like counteracting the any environmental benefit you would get from reduced like greenhouse gas emissions, uh, in addition to like potential exploitation of like much poorer countries. People are proposing things like using AI to solve food insecurity, right? Like, that sounds great. Food insecurity is a big problem in the world. We could feed the world. But the U.S. already produces enough food to feed the whole world. We don't need AI to solve food insecurity because it's an organizational problem. That food gets thrown away. It gets waste because we decide we don't need it because there's not any profit to be made in feeding the world. But there is profit to be made in starting a company that uses AI to solve food insecurity because then you can sell a product to someone to solve the problem that the organizational structure created. Part of the approaches that I'm sort of putting on is that, you know, capitalism and the idea of development and more and more resources, you know, maybe came out of a need. We fulfilled that need and we went way past mm-hmm. it and we let it sort of inherently grow, but maybe put the brakes on it, but not just shut it down, but, and, you know, just start afresh, but more put the brakes on and solve some of the problems before, you know, moving too fast ahead, like saying, yeah, a lot of value out of the system, take the brakes. There's some things that have definitely strong problems from it solve some of those and move still forward but more cautiously and more responsibly yeah like even like let's look at space travel right a lot of these billionaires like branson bezos musk they're all investing in commercial space travel paying you can pay lots of money to them to like go take a little joyride which sounds cool right like like you said it's sci-fi like everyone was excited about space travel we could go explore other planets but look at What's going on in our own planet? We're running out, like climate change is is affecting like coastlines. It's affecting islands. We're seeing refugee crises like never before. Like there are so many problems on our planet that these billionaires that are rushing to leave the planet could easily solve or governments could solve if we like got some of that wealth back from them and then used it for some of the some of the societal good. I see two angles that could be looked at. There is solving the immediate problem of of capitalism, like, you know, one by one. And, you know, we've heard some good ideas around that. And then there's solving or looking at the broader context. So maybe at a broader level, let's start there. And then let's, it actually is nice to tap into the little ones. Do we just solve one problem at a time? Or do we solve a broader problem? So, you know, capitalism seems this misalignment of goals, values, and power. 
maybe. Mm -hmm. Do we restructure that? Or do we just focus on solving each individual problem? How, how would that look if you is had it, to solve the broader, the bigger problems, the inherent philosophical problems? How would that look to try and work at that? Is it a fool's errand or something we should pursue? I guess if I was looking at it in the context of solving the broader philosophical problems, I think capitalism itself is the problem. Because let's look at like the environment that brewed the concept of capitalism. Like this is 1800s Europe. This was created in the context of Europe in the height of empire, like where exploitation through colonialism was a common thing. And extracting resources from places that are considered other was like was the norm. The British in India, French, Dutch, Spanish, British in Africa, like all of Africa. Africa is the most resource rich continent in the world and is the poorest continent in the world. How does that make any sense except in the context of exploitation? What? They're not even supposed to own their own land. They live on the land and they don't even own the value that, that the world gets from that land. That is that in itself is enough of a reason for me to say on a philosophical level, it, it is a corrupt system. It is the wrong system. It is built on exploitation. It is built on like it is nouveau colonialism. The system, if it's not the right system, do you have thoughts on what the right system looks like? I'm not sure. Maybe something that is a bit more like a bit more socialist. Then you'd argue like, OK, well, who decides what is the greater good? also a very excellent question, right? Having a government decide what is good for everyone doesn't sound very appealing to many people. But having corporations that have even less oversight decide what's best for everyone uh, or not even care about what's best for everyone, just decide what's best for their shareholders is, well, way worse. So maybe it's somewhere in the middle, mo a more distributed, like deciding on the good I don't quite know, but the system we have now doesn't quite work. I don't know if we'll ever come up with a system that does. Maybe there is some are some ideas in academia, but I'm not like too well versed in them. And honestly, like you and maybe the listeners might be thinking like, who am I? What could I possibly do to like affect any change? This is considering systems that are like global. And I would say to that, don't get distracted by the global and the macro. It's easy to get to look at these big systems and say, there's nothing I can do, so I'm not going to do anything. Instead, I want to go back to the first, to the initial questions that when we were talking about happiness, just think about what is right for you. What is enough for you to choose happiness every day? And maybe through that, maybe if enough of us made these conscious decisions and decided that maybe we don't need to consume as much and maybe it's the connection with people and maybe then we'd have more empathy toward the people who are in pain and who are suffering so that we can have nice cars and iPhones. And so how do we move away from this consumerist sort of culture? I think it starts, change starts at the individual level. It starts with us. It starts with us saying, like really reflecting on ourselves and thinking about, like think about the purchases you're making. Is this purchase really providing you happiness? What would happen if you didn't have it? And then you can start asking yourselves follow-up questions like, okay, well, what about this 
TV I've got? Do I really need it? Do I really use it? Okay, well, what about the sites I go on on the internet? Do I really need it as much? I've been asking myself those questions. I used to go on Reddit a lot. I've like cut down my Reddit time significantly just by asking myself the simple question of, is this actually providing me happiness or am I just mindlessly scrolling? And that intention makes, lets me intentionally choose to do something else. Find yeah. something that does provide me value, provide me happiness. Myself also have definitely become less consumerist. <laughs> you know, I don't buy things as much. I sort of put my funds towards more experiential things. So you, you mentioned like the AI. What, what are your thoughts on this is a typical dystopian slash utopian idea of leaving it to an AI? To governments, the issue is their internal trust from the general population. Governments is sort of dwindling as they mm -hmm. fail in certain areas. You know, they're not making the right decisions. They're not necessarily looking for the best outcomes of society and they're meant to. Then you got the corporations that are fulfilling their own agendas even when they do altruistic things there's an agenda having a neutral entity like an ai to slowly take over these problems so i think in that you are uh, making the assumption that the ai is a neutral entity one question i'd ask to you is so ai is trained on data is data biased it can be biased. Depends how it's produced, right? Data that's mm -hmm. produced through actions and systems that humans are involved in will have some level of bias. Oh, yeah. And we're talking about systems yes. that humans are very involved in. Yeah, yeah. We got a lot of stake in this, right? But yeah. then you got to think can you filter out bias effectively? Can you almost re neutralize data and use this neutral state? to have this entity or maybe ask the entity itself like a ai or self-teaching right tell the ai hey learn how to be neutral how to take this data learn what biases are and develop a sense of how to be unbiased how to maintain the objectives that would be beneficial to the people see i'm not as confident that ai can do that quite yet i've done a lot of like ai studies read a lot quite a bit of ai and papers. I was in like an AI group at Amazon. And so I've got like some ideas of like, what are have been like current issues with AI. And a big problem is the biases inherent in the data that it's consuming. Any AI you have any AI system can only be as good as the data that it's using. And if the data it's using is has inherent biases, the AI will be biased. We have real examples of that in the U.S. Like there are uh, criminal justice systems that like companies sell these products to judges that want to like make quicker court decisions uh, in cases where you don't need a full jury. They'll be like, OK, well, put in the information and then we'll suggest the sentence. And it was found that these AIs were consistently providing longer sentences and harsher sentences to people of color. And yeah. the reason for that was that the incarceration data that it was using was inherently racist. Yeah. And so how do you teach an AI to not be racist when all the data that it's using is racist? Likewise, yeah. how can you teach an AI to make more equitable decisions on like a global level when the data that it'll consume is entirely based on profit motive or allocation of resources in order to make, yeah, in order to make the most profits for the most people. 
are for the fewest for the most shareholders. If you look at how like people love to say capitalism is better than socialism because it's not centrally managed, right? There isn't a central entity planning everything. It's decentralized. But isn't it a coincidence that that decentralization led to all of our manufacturing being in China? And then when a global pandemic comes out of China and shuts all that manufacturing down, it sh- literally shut down the whole supply chain of the world. Yeah. So the idea of at some level decentralization is dispersing the responsibilities. So as opposed to, you know, one big entity having all the responsibility to achieve, you know, the aims of the system as a whole, you disperse that so that, you know, the responsibility is placed so that, you know, some of the pieces break in isolation. It's the whole system doesn't fail. Mm -hmm. Could this be a parallel that we look at somehow? Read is still power into a more general sense where, you know, as opposed to one big entity has all the power every person has a much stronger sort of influence uh, or agency yeah i think like decentralization in that context like i mean it's it sounds it sounds great I, I don't know how we do like a decentralized thing that solves like the bigger societal problems we have like i mentioned before even capitalism with its supposed decentralization of power is still centralized in planning because they're ultimately like if your motive is profit and making the most profit as possible, then all of your production will be in certain places that will provide you the most labor for the least cost. Yeah. Is there a way to shift the values of capitalism? Consumerism becomes, you know, as a person, a value system that has been instilled and focused on and developed in a certain way. And, you know, as people, as we get out of that struggle with consumerism, we, you know, create new values and shift our values and realize what's really valuable. In a capitalism sense, can we, can we do that? Can we shift the values? It's good, very good at striving towards specific values, in this case, maybe consumerism and those, and, you know, empower you know gaining and so on but if we shift the the value system but use the same engine that may be a viable sort of path and maybe that's what we'll end up having to do i don't think that would be capitalism though i think that would be something else and the u.s used to have in the before the 60s as part of corporate governance like workers had a seat on the board of directors and the boards of directors are the main people that like make the biggest decisions for the company. So that's why lots of companies used to provide pensions. Lots of companies provided like great healthcare, vacation, like time off, um, all these things because work and like higher salaries, like living wages, because like workers had a seat at the table. When that was removed, though, then the value structure went entirely to shareholder profit. And that's when we saw the big economic boom in the stock market in the U.S. But also resulted in CEO wages greatly outpacing worker wages by like 100x. Yes. Think of this. Why do we think we should use AI to replace workers when we could replace all of that middle management with AI? Like, what does a CEO do that an AI can't this point? Oh, no, exactly. <laughs> Everyone at some level can be replaceable. <laughs> I think a CEO is much more automatable today with the AI we have. ChatGPT could probably replace Elon Musk versus a Twitter engineer or a Tesla engineer. That's an interesting, it's almost flipping the head as opposed to a bottom-up yeah. AI uh, placement strategy you go top down ai placement strategy where you've got all these core pieces at the bottom and those core pieces are the majority you know of the workforce why don't we slowly phasing out a much smaller number of people but also hitting a lot bigger sections 
of you know change like you replace ceo the amount of impact you can have is massive right but you replace one guy well you know he's out of a job his life's massively impacted but the business is you know just out of that one instance has had minimal change right the ceo is gonna get a fat uh golden parachute to leave you know they'll, they'll be paid their salary for many years and be given an expedited stock vesting the ceo will be fine what are the decisions that a ceo makes they just go to meetings they make some they take some input and they spit some output oftentimes they're not really coming up with anything new and groundbreaking the stuff that chat gpt spits out could easily like replace what a ceo does no and maybe with the high level positions the level of agency creates the that human element of things do go much more of course right i'm a low level position i've got quite a dedicated role right you know my role is i don't make sure the gears on this machine work so you know i don't have the agency to take the company into a negative direction that much the worst i can do is break the gears but i'm specialized right but at the top you know we could do all sorts of wrong things you know i'm a ceo i can all of a sudden destroy the environment you know i can choose uh our money making potential over the rights of workers so with that agency yeah. maybe the human elements creates the more open space for these things so look at like meta and the metaverse they spent 10 billion dollars on a concept that never took off 10 billion dollars billion with a b 10 billion usd that money could have gone a long way to solve a lot of problems but instead went into a glorified tech demo that went nowhere yeah. If that's not a waste of resources, like when we find out that the government wastes ten billion dollars, we like freak out. So why don't we freak out collectively when like a company, a corporation wastes ten billion dollars? I do wonder though if this approach <laughs> leads to kind of the sense of like enslavement where we as opposed to replacing people, you know, like the general citizen, we replace the systems that control the general citizen, but then that control is given to the machine. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't see how that's any different from the system we have today. This is it's fair. not like an actual <laughs> AI, but it's still like a machine that is controlling you. Yeah, but it's it can think at a very powerful level maybe it'll make less mistakes i guess the problem i'd have is that ai would be trained on probably bad data and would probably just make even more like pro profit incentive decisions <laughs> maybe like, more effectively slash more uh, salaries like <laughs> longer work hours <laughs> like more exploitation why cut up the rainforest one section at a time just cut it up in one go <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> there are definitely things in the future that could sort of influence how capitalism maintains itself and changes. Mm-hmm. There's this thought on top guys almost disincentivizing capitalism. I often in a debate around capitalism, there's this idea of the wealth cap or, you know, people seeing capitalism to that point that they've reached you know all the resources they need and sort of at once they're there just kind of creating a system that halts that and says cool <laughs> you're good now stop mm-hmm. uh, i was just wondering how effective you think those sort of wealth caps or so higher taxation type strategies can really sort of be implemented and make change is it you know, worthwhile I, I know a lot of people will who are making noise will say that's what needs to happen we need to hammer the guys at the top 
I think taxing wealth will help out a lot. There's a lot of wealth just sitting, doing nothing but collecting interest that could be used to solve the wrongs of the exploitation that generated that wealth. No one gets to be that wealthy without exploiting lots of people. I don't think it's possible. There are no ethical billionaires. Yeah. The, the question comes if you disincentivize getting to the top, does that have a detrimental effect on the guys at the bottom pushing to the top? It means that they don't have to push so hard. If the top isn't like much higher or if the top isn't really that exciting anymore, maybe people will focus less on spending their whole lives thinking about work and will spend more time building, developing relationships, giving back to their community, maybe pursuing other aspects of their life that provide fulfillment, maybe pursuing more creative aspects yeah. like art. In terms of this world we sort of have with jobs and careers, you know, jobs and careers, there's sort of a different like aspects that you can choose, like paths. You could either do like a job you really enjoy, but maybe it's not that lucrative slash doesn't enable you to pursue other forms of happiness. Or you could do mm -hmm. one that's just this time I give up as opposed to, as you mentioned earlier, the giving up time now for later. But doing that on a micro level, you know, <laughs> there's this show Severance where we detach our working selves from ourselves outside of work. So they split the consciousness where you have yeah, this operation cool. where you, you enter this company that's all top secret. You have this operation. And so your memories of when you're in the workplace are separate from your memories when you exit the workplace. So when you enter the workplace, your whole consciousness switches between the two. <laughs> but now you've got these people living this weird sort of horror every day they're working. So like they never sleep. They, <laughs> the day ends, the next thing that the day started again in terms of their perceived reality. But the person on the outside is living this great life because they enter work and then it's like a second goes and they go back to life. And so you're giving up like half your time that you're literally not experiencing at all, but you're doing that so the time that you still have, you're having higher quality. That's just kind of a expansion on the idea of do you work tough jobs, but have an awesome day-to-day -day life outside of the job? Or are we giving away too much by doing that? And I think that's a, ultimately a question that everyone has to answer for themselves. I don't think that there's a blanket answer there. No. Um, I know for me, the answer was it's not really worth it. So I'm taking time off and just doing my own thing. But, you know, I'm also exploring, like, how can I choose happiness while also working? What does that mean? Maybe I need a different type of job. Maybe I need a different career. Do I even care about a career? At this point in my life, I don't really even care about a career anymore. Like, why do I need a career? Instead, I'm thinking about it in the context of what is enough for me? What is enough so that I can have the resources I need to choose happiness every day? This makes me think of the scenario where, you know, with AI, we, we have the potential to offload jobs. And, mm -hmm. you know, capitalism, when it grew, people were maybe excited by the idea of, well, now we can work with less and less, right? As we built, develop, you know, stronger systems and mm -hmm. more effective systems, instead of working an eight-hour day, we've got all this stuff built up. Now we can work a seven-hour day, you know? And now we yeah. have technology takes care of a lot of our needs in a six-hour day. But that never happened, really, right? We work longer, well, yeah than ever and that was the proposed promise of like the assembly line that like we wouldn't need 40 hour weeks anymore yeah so, so you know 
What went wrong? Well, right. So I'm doubtful that we'll get that with AI. <laughs> yeah, but that's this is like the second almost iteration or chance at that, right? Is is this AI is kind of almost doing that process in its own way of saying, well, yeah, give this time back. You know, quality of life yeah. is where you spend your time. The uh, not so enjoyable jobs, well, replace those so that people who work in those positions can have better jobs. <laughs> but it's kind of what capitalism tried to do back in the day. But now AI is potentially going to do it. You know, does it work out better? Does the nature of AI mean that this time around, maybe it can be successful? I don't think there's anything about AI that will solve this in itself. I think it's whether or not corporations will will play ball and give people rights. But I will say what I'm seeing in at least the tech industry gives me very little faith that that will happen because we see now that as a lot of tech companies are like in the past couple of years, everyone's been working remote. But now a lot of tech companies are pushing people like mandating that people come back to the office. They're reducing like benefits and they're just cutting back on the small freedoms that their employees had over the pandemic and trying to start a new era of like even less freedoms and rights as employees. Your corporation, your boss is not your friend. They are not trying to make life better for you. They are trying to extract as much value out of you as possible. And if that means getting your butt in the office to increase the value of the property of that like office building, then they will do it. And no AI is going to solve the problems that capitalism has created. I want to touch on some of the, the, the big issues. So, you know, inequality at the, at the result of capitalism. How do we fix that within the capitalism framework? Tax, heavy taxes on wealth and then put that wealth back into the communities that capitalism exploited like a lot in the u.s especially like and i'm sure south africa has experienced some of this a lot of the communities of color like have been consistently exploited for the gain of the white capital owners that's a way to start to undo some of these wrongs we talked about like public education, right? Like take yes. that ta those taxes, put it back into public education, improve public education, improve like infrastructure, improve the, the waterways, improve the things that everyone is accessing to help bolster the everyone else and maybe lower the top a little bit. I mean, maybe you can incentivize that by saying, you know, if we fund that person's education, we get a cut of what they earn. Then you have incentive to develop them into top end career, right? So right. I mean, that's the idea behind like taxes, right? That's why like governments should always be trying to like make as highly valued future employees as possible. I mean, let alone that like our whole lives are based around the context of work and the value that we'll produce. But yes, in that context, it is in the best interest to make as highly valued future employees as possible. Yeah. No, exactly. Develop your employees and <laughs> uh, develop the people you can get in. And so the other aspects of, you know, capitalism sort of damages is the environment and mm -hmm. things running out. How do we carefully navigate this sort of problem that we're having? Like, what, what's the smart way to do it? Because the problem's here, right? Oversight has been challenging in some areas, which is why certain companies have gotten away with certain things. So, so how do we navigate this problem? We've got these, you know, abuses. How do we stop it? I guess you have to, like, push for someone bigger than the companies to regulate those companies and enforce those regulations. And that means governments in most cases. We haven't gotten to the case yet where companies have become bigger than governments. I fear that may one day be the case, and that could be terrifying. And in some countries, it literally is the case. 
like banana republic much <laughs> <laughs> and the idea of a maybe a, all these companies keep growing and growing and governments become irrelevant and something like a corporate world government is established and you know this is kind of going into like a bit of proper future sci-fi type stuff but what happens if that becomes the case like all the corporations have to keep each other in check because people work at every corporation and every corporation has things at once so you know if that corporation abuses you know its industry and abuses the society and the system well there's enough corporations in the system that someone can have a problem with it you know it's like the un of corporations well if that one's basically you know ruining that sector and ruining those people's lives and you know causing problems like lack of education well you know we have all the other guys sitting on the other end of the bench we're not so happy about that and we have votes in this and so i don't know it's a it's a thought what what do you think is there value that can be derived from like a big corporate government where all the companies the big players just have to keep each other in check because hey they're all want a functioning system at the end of the day and at the moment it seems like it's the problem is the guys who are invigilating each other all have the same sort of goals but if you have this whole mesh of goals like a democracy of corporations <laughs> I, I, I wonder what do you what do you think on that do you think there's any hope there or was it uh, another sci-fi just to be watched late at night for some popcorn flick I mean, I think you're just describing an oligarchy and uh, the post-Soviet Union states have seen where that goes. It ends up being that you just have a lot of agreements between these corporations to not get in each other's ways as long as they're all making money. I don't think there's going to be any benevolence in a giant corporate global governance. No, that's the problem. These things in theory sound great, but the implementation's always a challenge <laughs> and leads to what the actual it looks like. But this can go into communism or socialism. Just to sort of touch some of the periphery sort of systems. What are your thoughts on the philosophy of communism and why it doesn't seem to work? Maybe it does, but I mean, that's that's your opportunity to give that perspective, right? Why isn't it everywhere or should it be everywhere? The reason why it isn't everywhere is the U.S. and the Cold War. I mean, the U.S. literally would bomb countries like we were we traveled like in Laos and Cambodia, right? Those countries were consistently bombed. Vietnam was like carpet bombed for years to stop the halt of communism. So what other need do you need to like not do a political system than that? The U.S. embargoed Cuba like we're U.S. citizens still can't go to Cuba. We overturned, we toppled governments, the CIA toppled governments all over South America. Any time that an African nation decided to try to nationalize some of their resources like emerald mines or like whatever else, suddenly those leaders that were proposing that would uh, find an early grave. Oh, suspicious <laughs> death. Suspicious. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's not because of some rigorous debate and that these ideas were defeated on the battlefield of academia, <laughs> but that there were literal bloodshed to prevent it from happening. So that's a colonial powers could keep providing value. When I go on communism, just as an example, opposing system to kind of compare, let's start with the broader philosophies around it and your thoughts on it. And then we can move into the implementation. So as the philosophies of communism, you know, everyone's getting, you know, a piece of the pie and, you know, people only get as much as they want. You know, the philosophy, the sales pitch of when it works or, you know, if it did work, you know, why, why we like so the like, philosophy of it. So I think there is a lot of value in the idea of workers 
it, like getting some of the value that they provide to the company. And maybe you don't need full-blown communism, but like even like highly valued workers, you are only in a capitalist system, you're only getting paid the minimum needed to keep you on the job. And while they try to extract as much value as they can from you, by definition, if there was some sort of profit sharing, you would be making significantly more, maybe like five to 10x what you are being paid. And this is the case for like agricultural, for, this is the case for every single labor. Have you heard of the the actors and the writers strikes on Hollywood right now? Oh yes, the, the big hot topic, yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That, I mean, look at that. So for those unfamiliar, this started off with the Writers Guild striking because as technology is advanced, as capitalism has grown and made media so much better with streaming, there has been no incentive to change the contracts for writers. So writers are paid per episode. But because shows aren't coming out on network TV, there isn't a push for syndication, in which case you'd need to publish uh, like 100 episodes or so to get syndicated. And so if you were a writer, you'd be getting paid for all of that. And you'd be getting paid for the times that the uh, show would be replayed, which is great. But with streaming, they aren't being paid for as much. And we know that seasons are a lot shorter. Back in the days of like network TV, a season of, of a series would have like 30 episodes. Now we are lucky to get 10 episodes, maybe six episodes is what we'll get on shows. And so writers are getting significantly less money. They're not getting paid per like lay since and since it's not on like network TV, they're not getting paid for reruns or anything like that. So writers are getting shafted and the streaming platforms are getting paid bang. Likewise, similar things are happening with the actors. In fact, with the actors and the writers, there's also big concerns about this generative AI, just studios trying to replace all of them with generative AI. Like there have been cases of like background actors having like a full body scan. So that way they can be replicated in the future for future episodes, but they only get paid once. They don't yeah. get paid per likeness. It would be like if your employer came to you and said, hey, can you do this one job for me? And they're like, okay, great. I don't need you anymore. I'm going to just, I taught this AI how to do everything and they're doing your whole job. You can, there's the door. We'll pay you for the day. We're done. But I mean, this sort of scenario was why things like royalties were created, right? Was in instances where the value of something could be taken away from you. You share your idea to the world. Well, you know, you can only share your idea once, right? So we need a system yeah. to incentivize the, the value of the idea or the value of the role actually gets the money that it should and that you could argue that right now what the workers are pushing for is a more socialist perspective or a more, maybe something more communist they want more of that value that they are providing to their bosses which i think is a very reasonable thing to ask and i think it should be what people are asking for but we're taught to kind of accept whatever we get and we're taught to have low self-worth so that we, whatever salary we get, we're happy with and like whatever labor or profits that our company is making, like it's okay, whatever, it doesn't matter. Like all these tech companies reported record profits last year and still laid off like 10% of their workforces. Just why? If you have record profits, why not reward your employees? Oh, and their bonuses, they're cutting like perks. Oh, there's all these costs now that they don't want to have. Oh, but they also reported record profits. If you think that your company is your friend in any context, then you are just fooling yourself because they do not think that you are their friend.
Yeah, but it's kind of crazy, right? Is you know, if you add X value to a company, you should earn X, right? This kind of goes into the profit sharing idea, uh, but that's what happens, right? So if your company's thriving, you know, you should be thriving, right? But if you if you work in a big company, especially you, you don't even notice. It's like as it can even get worse. Oh, yeah, it's, yeah, it's boiling the frog, they call it. <laughs> I think uh, two things just to go over before the, before the end. The mm-hmm. sort of quickly on the the communism thing. Why does it fail? I just wanted to touch I think on that. Corruption. Before. Corruption is a huge part of it. My dad grew up in the Soviet Union. He saw a lot of that corruption firsthand, which is why he's very anti-communist. A lot of it is like, yeah, when you have like officials that can be bribed, then they can show favoritism to people, right? And then like there's this sense of unfairness. It turns out that corruption and nepotism isn't unique to communism. That's kind of like a condition of humans. And that even happens in capitalism. Like people get promoted for being friends or family with people who are higher up. People born into wealth just get things handed to them. Do you think it's more prone to this in communism? Yes, in terms of like how much power people get. Central planning is arguably not so great. There was a lot of central planning in the USSR, which was very inefficiently done and did wipe out a lot of like the local customs. Like, for instance, in the Caucasus, Armenia, which was historically one of the oldest wine producers in the world, was no longer able to produce wine. Instead, Georgia and Moldova were able to produce wine and Armenia was only allowed to produce brandy. Um, So because of that, a whole generation of people forgot a lot of the history of making wine. A lot of the technique was lost and people had to recover like the winemaking techniques. So things like that, like, yeah, having one person define how the economy should be done and where production should be isn't isn't efficient at all. No, that's a terrible solution. Um, There are definite problems with that. And also historically being tied to authoritarianism is problematic. However, I don't know if every potentially socialist country would have been really totalitarian if the U.S. didn't like get involved. Like some of these places, especially in, uh, in South America, people were democratically electing like more socialist, more left leaning presidential candidates. And it wasn't until the U.S. came in and did some coups and installed a dictator that we got into those cases. And actually, dictators are, turns out to be very useful in capitalism, too, because if you want to exploit your a country's resources, all you have to do is pay off one person. <laughs> Crazy like and that. that happened a lot in Africa, too, like after the empires collapsed, but they still wanted access to those resources. Uh, they just like put in, put in leaders that were sympathetic to their exploitation and, you know, grease the wheels a bit. It's a sort of a makes me think of missionary type thing where they our way is kind of the way. And so we impose that on yeah. all these other locations. But then even worse, you kind of leave a guy in charge that will continue to push that kind of agenda or enable you to pursue that agenda elsewhere. So it's like, yeah, very problematic. Where do you think capitalism in the future is going, you know, to space, space (laughs) capitalism? (laughs) I think if left unchecked, we will experience more of the world will will experience what South Korea is currently experiencing, where you have very few corporations that are absolutely massive. And it results in a huge and very glaring like wealth inequality, wealth disparity. It can feel like there's no end in sight. Look at some of the most popular media to come out of South Korea in the last like decade. You had size Gangnam Style, which was satirizing one of the most rich neighborhoods in Seoul. You have Parasite, 
a hugely internationally acclaimed movie about a rich and poor family where the poor family is basically invisible to the rich family and lives in like sewage and lives in the shadow of the rich family and fight each other to try to get crumbs, literal crumbs and squid games where you have like, it's a whole movie about people in horrible debt fighting each other or like playing games of life or death with each other in order to try to hope to clean out that debt while rich people make bets on them. Do you think our interest in those sort of themes in that media is maybe because they're happy to challenge these ideas? I think it's more of this is like what people are feeling. This is like the angst that is going on. Like this is what those artists are seeing in the streets or in their own country. Yeah, maybe it's empowering to people to see that these things can be challenged in a world where it feels like maybe these things are out of control, you know. There's a bit of power well, back but, to the people. I mean, in each of those cases, it did not end well for the poor people. No more that the social commentary can be out there critiquing what's going on. Uh, sure, yeah. I just think it's telling that that is the most popular internationally acclaimed media that's been coming out of South Korea. Like, I mean, there's a lot of current Korean dramas, too, and things like that. I don't want to say that those aren't important, too. But I think that the ultimate end goal, if things keep going, is that corporations are going to get larger and larger, control more and more of the means of production. And we, the laborers, the workers, we're going to have less and less. Do you see a point of breaking or implosion or revolution that comes in this trajectory? In some places, probably, yeah. I don't know if it'll happen in the U.S., but, I mean, places in Europe will probably fight back. Portugal has passed laws about to protect workers' rights, things like your employer isn't allowed to, like, email you out outside of work hours or you're not you are entitled to not email back outside of work hours um some places are experimenting with shorter work weeks some places are more keen to have like uh, strikes and protests for anti-work positions but that just gets harder and harder the more power that gets consolidated at the top yeah and so to the listener out there it's sort of pieces of advice for trying to thrive in this capitalist world in your day-to-day life just repeat what i said before you should view happiness more as an internal journey rather than an external think reflect on what is enough for you to choose happiness every day and then try to get there maybe then you'll realize you don't need to work as hard Maybe then you'll decide that there are other things in your life that are more valuable than buying new things. And if you do, then maybe you can help other people along in their journeys of finding their own happiness. We can't rely on a corporation to help us. We have to help each other. Yeah, together we can be strong, right? Any last things you'd like to say to the listener? It's uh, my typical end of episode slot to Mm -hmm. give the speaker those last little pieces of things they've been wanting to say or just anything, fun stories, anything like that. Main advice I wanted to say, if you're interested in hearing more of my conversations about capitalism, I had a really fun episode with one of my friends on my podcast, Authentic Chaos, and we titled the episode Capitalism, A Love Letter, where I satirically give some things that I love about capitalism. And we talk a lot about like some of the more concrete issues that are happening in the U.S. I would also say try not to feel down 
And it's easy to feel defeated, but we shouldn't feel defeated. That's what like the system wants us to do, but we should feel empowered to choose happiness. We can be happy in any situation, but the first part of that is trying to look within and understanding what is that source of happiness for you and how do you choose it. Thank you, Vahachan, for joining us today and providing invaluable insights into the world of capitalism and consumerism. Thank you for having me, Stephen. This is a lot of fun. As we wrap up this enlightened discussion, we encourage our listeners to continue exploring these subjects with open mind and a critical lens. Remember, gaining a deeper understanding of our economic systems allows us to actively participate in shaping a more equitable and sustainable future. Join us next time on The Power of Perspective with Stephen Ritchie as we continue to dive into diverse topics and unravel the complexities of our world. You can follow us on Instagram at Power of Perspective with Stephen. Thanks so much for listening. Mm-hmm.